suppose you're broadcasting it yeah all right it's good hello to everybody at home all right hope you're doing well miss you if you can't be here today want you to know that we miss you very much and we're praying for you to be well and do well all right probably gonna see a lot of this this morning so question this morning is there anything impossible for god someone asked you that question what would you say is anything impossible for god Greg not crying when he sings would be one I would really appreciate, but turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. There's an alternative answer to the default answer that we often give that we're going to try and look at this morning. In Hebrews chapter 6, beginning of verse 17, change my thing here. One of the cool things about using technology like an iPad is you can flip through different translations, but if you're not careful, you leave yourself on the wrong one. Um, Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 17, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this morning and this privilege and this opportunity it is to just look into your word, for you to reveal yourself to us in a deeper way, to help us in our walk here on this earth in this time, to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, to understand him and know him, to love him, to live for him. So Lord God, I ask your blessing on this morning and this time in your word. Lead us through this passage and the verses that you have, that our hearts will be changed and our lives will be changed but that the world can also see who you are. I ask you to bless this time now for your glory in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So there is something impossible for God. God cannot lie. But before we get into that deeper, I just want to tear apart this, these verses a little bit because there's a lot of wonderful blessings um, that God just blessed me with in looking at who he is. This begins with this, and I'm kind of—I know I'm, I'm skipping the context of Hebrews six, and just focusing on these verses. I hope you don't mind. Um, it, it's such a rich chapter, and there's so much going on here. But I just want to focus on this idea of understanding God better in this concept that He cannot lie, and what it means for us, and what we have to stand upon. It says this: God, determining to show more abundantly. Why would God? need to prove his word. Why doesn't God just say, I'm God. This is my word. Deal with it. But there's so much mercy in God and everything that he does. And it's important that we note that the word here, it says determining to show more abundantly, not prove, 
God does not need to prove his word. His word stands because it's God's word. But he wants to show more abundantly. That is solely for our benefit. God wants us to know abundantly that his word is true. And if there's something he has to do on his end for us to take that into our hearts and be able to rely on it and trust it, he's the one willing to do it. There's nothing I can do, there's nothing you can do that proves God's word. Trying to live it might validate it for some people to say, yeah, what you say is true because I see it in your life. But you know, God stepped out. God wanted them to know the proof of his word. So what did God do? God made an oath with Abraham. See, it's God's passion. Literally, I believe the word passion is the right word that we trust in him. Because that's the foundation of our relationship. If you don't have trust, you can't have a real relationship. There has to be belief and, and dependability. There has to be, for that to happen, there has to be vulnerability. If I'm going to rest on God's word, if I'm going to say, God, I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust in you, that's a vulnerability on my part. So for me to be able to do that, I have to have emphatic trust with no hesitation that what God says is true. And I know we say it all the time. It's, it's the easy thing to say, oh, I trust God's word. I believe God's word. It's not so easy to live it sometimes. It's not always so easy to live it. So God steps out. And he doesn't just say, all right, I want you, I want you to know. I'm going to show you. But it uses the, the word here um, abundantly. God shows more abundantly. God doesn't leave anything to question. God doesn't leave anything for us to go, well, it's probably true. God does it convincingly. We, we tend to have a, a one-sided view of our relationship with God, but I think in, in a verse like this, it really emphasizes how important it is to God that we understand the mutability of his word. It's important to him that we trust his word. It's for our complete benefit. We're the beneficiaries of trusting in his word. But he cares so much about us, and he knows how much we need his word that he'll do what he has to do on his side for us to be able to have the full dependence and trust upon it. Uh, you know, this word abundantly, right? We, we see it, uh, we've seen it multiple times in the scriptures. I'll throw these out, maybe you guys know the answer. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus said what? They have what abundantly? Life. God wants us to have life abundantly. In Ephesians 3.20, 320, what does he want us to have abundantly? All that we ask, he pours upon us richly and abundantly. In Titus 3, he gives us mercy abundantly. And in 2 Peter 1.11, entrance into the kingdom abundantly, it says, abundantly. So it's a character consistency of God that when he wants us to have something, when he wants to bless us with something, he's going to do it abundantly. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't it just draw you to him 
when you think about the fact that everything he wants to give us, he wants us to have it abundantly. And in this right here, he wants us to know abundantly that he cannot lie. If he says it, it's true. Because there are times in life when that's tested. And if you don't know that, it's going to be a hard trial. Because there's going to be trials where the only thing you have to stand upon is his word. Because you can't control the outcome. You can't predict the outcome. You can't even be prepared for the outcome. You can't even be prepared for the trial sometimes. But what you can do is you can know that God's word is true. He knows that that's the one thing we're going to have to rely on through the uncontrollable, the unpreparable things that are going to come. So he shows abundantly to us. Who are us? It says here, God's determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise. That is us. Do you ever put that title upon yourself? I am an heir of promise. Just We talk about being an heir all the time, right? We're, we're heirs. In Romans 8, it says this in verses 16 to 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Heirs, those recipients of the blessing and the promise. What is the promise here? Well, it began with Abraham. That's the context of this passage that I'm skipping. I'll just jump ahead and tell you. They talking about the promise that was originally made to Abraham. What was the promise made to Abraham? That from you I will make a great nation, and all nations will be blessed. And from you, your seed will come the greatest blessing. We are the recipients of that promise. The promise that God made to Abraham, not just for a Jewish nation, but he said all nations. We get to be blessings of that. We fall into that now because of Christ. We are the full heirs. By the way, those passages are Genesis 15 and 22, if you ever want to look it up and study God's promises to Abraham. But it's important to recognize who we are when God's making this commitment to us. Who are the ones that God wants to show this to? The heirs of promise. What is it that we're trusting in? God's promise. What is it that we only have hope in? God's promise. Technically, it's Christ. We'll get to that later. But it's God's promise of life with him, of blessings, of abundance, of abundant blessings with him. And we are the ones who get to be the heirs of this. All under the Abrahamic promise. How did God establish that with Abraham? James talked about this. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago. When God made the covenant with Abraham, and he, what was it, a bird? Heifer, thank you. Cut it in half. Who's the one who did all the work to make the covenant? God. Abraham just stood by. It was God who established the covenant. It was God who was the one who proved to Abraham. God didn't need the covenant. God didn't need the heifer. God didn't need the oath. God spoke, and it was good for God. It was for Abraham that God did this. We now, being the heirs of promise, get to look at that kind of character in God 
and we see that promise, that commitment that God made, and we can believe in it. We can trust in it. So God confirmed it by an oath. Now, the passage here uses this uh, word that we use all the time. I hear it in conversations constantly, immutability. Um, immutability, everybody says it, right? Thank you for, Mariana, for paying attention. Immutability, nobody says immutability. The immutability of his counsel. What that means is it's unchangeable. God's promise doesn't change. This that he wants us to know so badly that he confirms for us and wants us to know abundantly is the fact that his word won't change. I don't know about you, but I've lost track. I can't count, and and maybe to my shame, I haven't kept a better count, a log of these things, because it would be good, of all the times I've needed that. I've needed to just trust that God's promise is true. Every promise, right? Every promise, the big promises and the little promises. Every promise, I will never leave or forsake you. That's a big one to me. Because there are times where loneliness and isolation sets in. But you're not alone. We're never alone. That's a promise of God that he wants us to know. This word counsel here really means God's purpose. I don't know why it's translated counsel. It's more literally the word volition, right? It's what God does on his own. Albert Barnes says, it's not by consulting his creatures or conforming to their views, but by his own views of what is proper and right. So it was God's determination that is unchangeable that we know it is impossible for him to lie. He cannot lie. And the reason why I stress that over and over again, because I think we, we struggle with trusting that, even when we, if we don't realize it. God, I know you said, but, you know, I know you said, but. Sometimes we don't even know what he said. We're out there going, God, what's, what's the story? But we should know what his promises are. But it's unchangeable, this thing that we stand upon. It's an, it's an anchor. This truth is a, is a critical anchor. There are a lot of anchors, and, you know, Christ is the rock that we stand upon. But the fact that whatever God said can't change, and it's truth, is a critical platform that we stand upon. Because it's going to get challenged all the time. It gets challenged constantly. It's challenged in the world. It gets challenged in our life. It gets challenged in our relationships. It gets challenged in our sin. It gets challenged. But God wants us to know that you can believe that his word will not change. He'll never abandon us, and he'll never leave us.
In Ephesians 1.11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So what God determines is set. What God determines is set. And what God has determined is that we are his for eternity. And there's nothing that can change that. There's nothing I can do, no matter how bad it is, that's going to change God's view of me. There's nothing I can do that's going to change my eternal position in Christ. When Jesus said, well, the Father has given to me, no one can take, he doesn't lie. He doesn't lie. No matter how bad I stumble and fall and mess up, I can look at that and I can go, God doesn't lie. My God doesn't lie. And when he said that, it's truth. And I can't mess that up. No matter what I do, even how justifiable it is for God to turn on me and go, I've had enough, he won't because he said he won't. And if he ever does, he's a liar. And my God is not a liar. But how does he establish this for us? Because he doesn't need to for himself. For me, he did two things. Remember what God said back in Deuteronomy? By two witnesses. Right? No one's judged without two witnesses. So what does he do here? By two immutable things to prove that God can't lie. He has his promise and he has his oath. We have two things to verify that God said he will do what he said. God does two things in other times in Scripture, too, for us to know this. In John 19, verse 34, remember Jesus on the cross, and they wanted to verify he was dead. What did they do? The soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. There's two things, two things God gave to prove that his son died for us. What came out? Blood and water. People have different views on these. The blood is clearly the sacrifice for us. The water could be a symbol for baptism and washing and renewing. It could also be a sign of the living water that is Christ. I can't emphatically say, but I could tell you that there's two things that came out that proved God's promise. Who was there at the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah, two witnesses. Who's going to be there in Revelation? Two witnesses. So by two things, God proves his word. And here, the writer tells us it's his promise and his oath. The validity of his word. For us, God established the truth of his word. But why? He's going to tell us next. Why do we need this? Why do we need this validation for us? He says, so that we might have strong consolation. 
This is what we've been talking about. There are times when you need to rest and trust in God's word. And you need to know that it's God's word you can trust. That's consolation. When there's hope in nowhere else, God gives us consolation. In Isaiah 51, 12, he says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the son of a man who will be made like grass? He gives us strong consolation in his word. When we read through his word, we find the comfort. We know that we can trust in it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word, word and work. May God himself give us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace and comfort our hearts and establish us. It goes right back to the promise that we churn and we rest upon that we already talked about. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. And in the hardest times, it is God who was our consolation. I'll console you the best I can. It's not going to be the same as God. I'll comfort you the best I can. I'll use the best words I have. They're not the same as God. Because I may not always. Being honest. I may not always. The promise I'll make you is I'm probably not not as dependable as God. (laughs) You want a promise? I'll give you a promise right there. I'll do the best I can. But, But God is consistent every single time. God never fails us. There's never a time of needing comfort that you cannot depend on God because he said he would. If we were not expected to struggle, if we were not expected to mourn, if we were not expected to have heartache, God would have no need to offer consolation. It wouldn't be a necessity for him to even bother. It wouldn't be needed. But there's not just mercy. It's abundantly. It's abundantly. <sighs> and this strong consolation is for us. He says, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Now, Hebrews is written to a Jewish audience. And so maybe for us, we may not grasp without study the magnitude of a phrase like fled for refuge. But I have a, I have a confidence that the Hebrew audience, based on their history and their knowing of their culture, that meant a lot to them. That phrase. There's a lot of different ways that the writers can write about us who have have taken hold of the gospel. There's lots of different ways that we talk about it today. Took hold of the gospel, believed in the gospel, trusted in the gospel, received the gospel. What does he say here? Fled for refuge. Just in and of itself, you know, fleeing is kind of a consistent thing in in the Jewish, Jewish history, right? 
the, the whole list of people who flee. Hagar fled from Sarai. Jacob fled from Esau. And then Jacob fled from Laban. Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. Moses fled from Pharaoh when he was cast out of Egypt the first time. David had to flee from Saul. And then David had to flee from Absalom. Many times you'll read of the kings of Judah fleeing and abandoning. Throughout the book of Judges, you see people fleeing. All of Israel fled from Goliath. The apostles, the disciples, they fled and left Jesus, didn't they? But what do we have here? We fled for refuge. To the Jewish reader, I'm going to assume that this, re- this means the city of refuge to them. In Numbers, they were promised, once they established new lands, cities of refuge, right? You know about the cities of refuge? They were established multiple cities in certain regions. If you accidentally killed someone before that person or their family could take vengeance, obviously not, that person's not going to take vengeance on you because they're dead, but their family might take vengeance on you. They actually had a person in the family who was dedicated to that purpose of vengeance. You could flee to the city of refuge and no one could touch you as long as you were there. Then they'd have a, a, a council, a judgment, and they'd review what happened. And if you were found guilty of killing someone, then the, the slayer got to have access to you. If you were found that it was accidental, you were set free. Or you could live there and stay there um, until time had passed that their family had died and you were free to leave. There's a picture of Christ in the city of refuge. Because here's the truth. It kind of spins a little bit when you put it in the truth of Christ. Because we're all guilty. In the city of refuge, if you were innocent, you could flee and be protected. For us, if every one of us ran there for whatever we did, we'd be, we'd be found guilty. But Christ stands up. He says, I'll take it for them. Yeah, they're guilty. I, I don't recall, maybe somebody knows better than me, that, that there was a, um, a, sacrifice, a sacrificial person who could take your place when you're in the city of refuge for the slayer so you could be set free. <laughs> but for us, there is. So we fled for refuge. We fled from the judgment that we were due and deserving. Because Christ makes us innocent. When the liar comes and says, no, 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 they're guilty, Christ says, no, they're mine. You know, one of the important things to remember as we consider about the fact that it's impossible for God to lie. The opposite of a lie is the truth. When Jesus says to the liar, who says they're guilty, God, why are they in your presence? You said nothing unholy can be in your presence. The truth is, we are found in his righteousness. So when Jesus stands up and says, no, they're, they're welcome here because they're mine. That's a truth. Because we're found in his righteousness. 
So we fled for refuge. Why? To lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Uh, I really just like this just simple phrase. In 1 Timothy 1.1, in, in Paul's greeting, he just says, of, Je- of Christ Jesus, our hope. We have a singular hope. When you break it down, there's lots of hopes that we have in life and through, through things and circumstances. When it breaks down, there's one hope, one hope that we trust in, one hope that's our promise, and it's the love of Jesus Christ. The writer describes this hope as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. I didn't realize this until I started studying this. I don't know if you knew this or not. You know, in, in, in ancient you know, Rome, in, in, the, in those days of the first century church, we know that they used to use the symbol of the fish. You find it on the walls and stuff, right? There's also an anchor. They used to draw an anchor. People in a place of like Rome, of persecution, Christians being persecuted, when they would put the mark of the fish, you'd often find the picture of an anchor. Because the anchor was the symbol of hope. If it's, if it's not anchored, <laughs> what, what, what do we know about it? Right? Let's look at anchors. If it's unanchored, it drifts. If it's unanchored, well, it's lost if there's a storm. If you have a boat out here in Guilford or Branford and a real hurricane comes, but let's say you're in Branford and you have a boat docked. Um, first of all, I'd like to hang out with you some more. But if, if regardless, um, if there's a storm, you know, maybe your, your boat might survive, but it might be up on, on the piers or, or wrecked up. I mean, I'm talking about a serious storm. I'm talking about a serious storm. They might find your boat down in Milford. They might find your, your boat in Long Island eventually. They might find your boat in Ireland. And they might just find fragments of a boat if it's unanchored. The anchor holds not just so you know where it is, but it's for protection. Spiritually, we don't want to confuse the purpose of the anchor. It's not to keep us from moving. Because even if an anchor is pulled up and a ship moves, the anchor's still on the boat. I doubt that a captain consciously thinks about this, but subconsciously, I would think that they're aware that wherever they get going, they can drop anchor. The anchor is with them, even when they have to move and go somewhere. So is our hope that is Jesus Christ. The anchor keeps you moored. So not only do you not go anywhere else and get lost, but it keeps you from smashing into other boats. Imagine having a really nice boat and you anchor it and a storm comes and some other guy didn't anchor his boat and your boat's now in pieces because he didn't anchor his boat. Anchor is a powerful thing. It's not a big thing on the boat, but man, what power it has to hold that boat. Compared to the size of a boat, 
Anchor's not that big. Bigger to both, bigger the anchor, but it's still not that big. Your escape dinghy is bigger than your anchor. But what a powerful device it is for the safety and protection of the boat. So I guess the question we have to ask using this symbol, this illustration is, do you feel anchored? Or do you feel adrift? Because if you're feeling adrift, where's your hope? Because it says here, hope is our anchor. And it's not just um, a figurative anchor. It's an anchor for the soul. More literally, of the soul. Do you know your soul needs to be anchored? I don't think I think about this enough. By that I mean at all. Right? But you know, we need to anchor the soul. Because you can't control the storm. There's no spiritual Doppler that's going to say, hey, there's a storm coming, anchor your boat. It needs to be anchored. The way we maintain the anchor, we persist the anchoring process, stay anchored, is by looking to this. The hope that was set before us which is the anchor of our soul and has entered the presence behind the veil is Jesus, our high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I hope that um, there's some things to think about. To trust God's word. Psalm 33:11 says the counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of his heart to all generations in Isaiah 46:10 he writes declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure Hey listen God's pleasure is you to fellowship with you to comfort you, to console you, to guide you, to lead you. There's a lot of things that are God's pleasure that are going to come. But for the hope that we need, for the comfort that we need, and the trust that we need in God's word, let's trust in God. Let's close. Lord God, we thank you again continually for how wonderful, amazing, comforting, anchoring (laughs) your word is. Lord God, there's one thing that we know. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word hung on a cross. And the word gave his life. 
and the word was in the tomb for three days, and the word rose again. and He sits at your right hand. So, Lord God, help us to believe. Help us to trust. Help us to remember and to rely and rest upon the promise that you have established for our benefit that you do not lie. You cannot lie and you will not lie. And every word is truth and every loving word and every comfort and every encouragement and every blessing. We know, Lord God, that your word is true. But help us, Lord God, in the hard times and the times when that truth is challenged, not by you, but by the one who wants to cause us to stumble, the one who wants to tell us that that's not true. That's not what God meant. Just like he did in the garden, he still tries the same thing today. So God, help us. Strengthen our faith. Strengthen our understanding of your word so that we know what to call on and what to rest on and what to believe in in those times. We ask, Lord God, that you be glorified and exalted. We thank you for the word. We thank you that you do not lie. Thank you for the love that you have shown us on the cross of Calvary. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Stay healthy and have a good week.